listening to Trojan War, the podcast, history's most awesome epic. This is episode number 16 in the series. Today's episode is titled, Priam. So welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to episode number 16 of Trojan War, the podcast. This episode is titled Priam. Now, you will recall that episode 15 of Trojan War, the podcast, was a terrible and horrific episode ending in Achilles' killing of Hector, Prince of Troy, and then worse than killing Hector, Prince of Troy, uh, desecrating and mutilating and defiling the body of the poor Prince of Troy. And As the episode finished, the people of Troy standing on their battlements, watching in horror, shock, and grief and rage, saw Achilles dragging behind his chariot the body of their poor beloved prince back behind the Greek lines, behind the tent of Achilles. And ladies and gentlemen, that's where we left things, and that's where we will pick up on this episode number 16. Well, Achilles got the body of Hector behind his tent. He dragged it there. He stopped his winded horses. He unhitched the horses and he left the body lying face down in the dirt. And Achilles bellowed out to the other Greeks who were watching this with some degree of horror. He yelled out the following. He said, no man touches this body. This body is for the dogs and the birds. And then Achilles, still in a rage, had stepped into his tent. And the first thing that Achilles had seen when he stepped into that tent was the dead body of his dear beloved friend Patroclus. And and at that moment, Achilles had burst into tears of grief and sorrow. Clearly, killing Hector and mutilating the body had done nothing to assuage the grief of Achilles. And, and he found himself throwing himself onto the bed beside his beloved companion Patroclus and crying and crying and crying. And, and other Greeks came into the tent and they looked on. And ladies and gentlemen, you have to imagine, Achilles would have been by this stage an absolutely terrible sight. If you will recall, when he had received news of the death of Patroclus, he had first gone to the fireplace and coated his body in in cold ashes and mud, the traditional Greek mourning gesture. And, And so his hair and his body he had coated in mud. And then Achilles had vowed that he would neither bathe, eat, nor drink until he had actually managed to kill Hector. And then Achilles had headed out onto the plain and spent an entire day hacking and cutting and butchering his way through all of the entire Trojan army before meeting Hector and then driving that body around and around the walls of Troy. So so Achilles, if you looked at him lying there, sobbing his eyes out in the bed beside his beloved companion now, well, Achilles was coated in a thick layer of mud and grease and blood and grit and dirt and grime and ash, lying there inconsolable. 
Well, Achilles spoke to the dead body of his friend, and he, he told Patroclus that, that he was well on his way of fulfilling his commitment to Patroclus. He said, I, I, I've, I've taken Hector, I've killed Hector, and, and now he lies outside of the tent where the dogs and the birds of prey will destroy him. And, and tomorrow morning, Patroclus, I, I will build a glorious funeral mound for you. And on that Patroclus, on that funeral mound, I will throw the dead bodies of the 12 young Trojan princes, which I have captured and will sacrifice. I will slit their throats, Patroclus, and they will burn on your funeral pyre with you. So go gently into the land of Hades, Patroclus, knowing this. Now, ladies and gentlemen, of course, this presents a few problems. First of all, Patroclus could not go gently into the land of Hades until Achilles finally got on to the task, which he should have done before pursuing Hector, of burning and burying his dear friend. So Patroclus was still caught in this state of limbo between the land of the living and the land of the dead. But there's another problem with this too. And that is everything we know about dear gentle Patroclus would suggest that the last thing in the world that dear gentle Patroclus would want is 12 young Trojan children having their throats slit and thrown onto his funeral pyre. That is completely out of character with everything we know about this man who was a medic and no warlord and, and, and took his time to look after everybody on the battlefield. So it's clear here, folks, that it, Achilles' sacrifice and Achilles' actions are, are, are not really for Patroclus, but Achilles, a very desperately grieving man, doing whatever he can to try to assuage his own personal pain and demons. Well, the Greek warlords watching Achilles in this state recognized that Achilles was in a perilous emotional state. And well, they did their rest to, to drag Achilles, their champion, back into the land of sensible men. So they dragged him. They virtually had to drag him to a huge feast which Agamemnon was preparing in his command tent and and, and they, they got Achilles to the feast. Now just a little bit about this folks, if if we leave Achilles' personal grief and rage at the loss of Patroclus and, and we zoom out and we take a, a larger, broader look at how every other Greek man in that beach is approaching this situation and seeing the last 24 hours, well this folks has got to be the banner day in the entire history of the last 10 years of the Trojan War for the Greek army. If you think about it, 24 hours earlier, that army was backed up against the beaches and, and only the heroics of, of Ajax, bulwark of the Greeks, was keeping the Trojans from setting the entire Greek fleet on fire, which would have trapped the Greeks against the beach and guaranteed their loss in the war and their complete destruction. So 24 hours ago, this had looked like the end of things for the Greek army. And now in the last 24 hours, well, the Trojan army had been decimated to the point where it would never really be able to step onto the field of battle again. And the the king of Troy, well, the de facto king of Troy, Hector, the, the, their greatest soldier, their leader, their diplomat, their Troy's everything was now lying dead behind the tent of Achilles. So the Greek fortunes had swung vastly for the better in the last 24 hours. And so, of course, all the Greeks, save Achilles, who attended that feast in Agamemnon's command tent, were absolutely overjoyed. They were going to live, and it now looked as though there was a very good possibility that they might actually win this war. But Achilles was no longer interested in any of those things. He, he was obsessed with the loss of his dear Patroclus. So when they, got him to, when they got him to the command tent and sat him down, Agamemnon took a look at Achilles and immediately ordered servants to prepare a huge 
cauldron of water and heat it. Achilles was badly, badly, badly in need of a hot bath and some clean clothes. But when Agamemnon invited Achilles to bathe and put on clean clothes, Achilles had flown into a rage again and vowed that he would neither wash nor eat nor drink nor sleep until he had burned and properly buried the body of dear Patroclus. So while having killed Hector and finding no peace, Achilles was now saying he would not eat, wash, or sleep until he had conducted the funeral rites of Patroclus. Well, as the other Greek warlords watched, and, and feasted and enjoyed themselves. It was a wonderful day for them. Achilles wandered away from the feast and, and walked back to his tent. But no matter how hard Achilles attempted to find some restful sleep and peace that night, he simply could not. And eventually in the wee hours of the morning, Achilles found himself leaving the tent and pacing back and forth along the shores of the Aegean Sea, listening to the relentless waves crashing in with their long, lonely sound. And as Achilles stood there wandering and pacing the sea, he eventually collapsed along the seashore into a troubled sleep. And in that sleep, he was visited by, well, this poor ghost of, of poor dead Patroclus, caught between the land of the living and the dead. And, and Patroclus arrived, woke Achilles from his sleep, turned to his beloved companion and, and implored Achilles, please, in the morning, whatever you do, Achilles, bury me. The, the spirits of the dead will not let me join them on the other side, Achilles, please bury me soon. And and Achilles had agreed and said, tomorrow will be the funeral rites for you, Patroclus. And, and then the two of them, recognizing that after those funeral rites, they would not speak again until some inevitable day when Achilles found himself in the land of Hades too. The, the two of them conspired to, to find their way of spending eternity together. Patroclus had suggested that when you die, Achilles have your bones interred in the same urn as are mine. And and when they had made that promise to each other, Achilles reached out attempting to hug Patroclus, but Patroclus being a ghost, well, vanished like mist or fog or dew in Achilles' longing hands. Well, the next morning, the Greeks prepared for the funeral of Patroclus, and it was the greatest and most stately and wonderful funeral that had ever been experienced inside the history of Greek epic. It, it was massive in scale, and when the funeral pyre had finally been built to a scale and a towering height sufficient to Achilles' satisfaction, they had brought Patroclus and laid him on top of that funeral pyre. And then Achilles, in, in a tender gesture of love and care for his dead companion, had cut a huge lock of Achilles' own glorious golden flowing hair and and placed that lock of hair tenderly into the hands of dead Patroclus and and then Achilles the rage rising in him again had followed through in his promise he had he had ordered the 12 Trojan boys uh, mere children uh, to be lined up and then one at a time Achilles taking his sharp short serrated blade knife had slit the throats of those 12 innocent boys and thrown their bodies onto the funeral pyre to accompany his beloved friend of Patroclus on his journey to the next life. Well, they set the funeral pyre on fire and eventually all the other Greeks left and walked back to their tents having witnessed this grisly event. But Achilles, beside himself with grief and longing and rage and confusion, had, had, had circled around and around and around that funeral pyre, pouring libations of wine and throwing them onto the fire and grieving and wailing his pain into the night sky. Finally, in the wee, wee hours of the morning, just before dawn, Achilles had stumbled away from the funeral pyre of Patroclus, wandered down to the beach, and, and did his best to fall into some form of troubled sleep. And, and ladies and gentlemen, it, it is a good thing that Achilles did every once in a while fall into a bit of troubled sleep, because 
Well, the man was on the verge of starvation, and the only thing that was actually keeping him alive now was were the tender ministrations of his of his loving mother Thetis. And and when Achilles would fall into a sleep lying there in the shores of the Aegean, Thetis would come up out of the waves and gently pour nectar and ambrosia, the the food and the drink of the deities themselves, into Achilles's nose and. And Achilles would somehow then manage to survive on nectar and ambrosia for another day of his self-imposed starvation. Well, the next morning when Achilles woke and recognized that there was still this ache and this pain in his heart and nothing was working so far, Achilles set out on another means of assuaging his pain. He called together the entire Greek army and he announced that this day would be dedicated to a funeral games for his loving, his beloved companion Patroclus. And and Achilles manically went about hosting a massive day of, well, pre-Olympic events, if you will. There was archery, there, there was a hammer toss, there were foot races, there was javelin throwing, there were wrestling matches and boxing matches. And And all the Greeks were ordered to participate in this glorious funeral games. Achilles called to his servants and he ordered them to his boat. And he said, bring the finest of my treasure. Bring all of my worldly goods. I will give out everything I own as prizes to the worthy victors of these events. And so as the men competed all day for these prizes, Achilles turned around and divested himself of all of his worldly goods. Now, ladies and gentlemen, a funeral games of this sort, uh, had it been conducted and hosted by a man healthy, a man who was actually dealing in a healthy way with the loss of a beloved friend, well, such a funeral games would have been a, a therapeutic miracle and a blessing, sort of like some cultures hold a kick-ass wake for the dead. But any of the Greeks looking on who were astute enough to notice these type of things, men like Odysseus would have noticed that that this was actually not a healthy celebration of a Patroclus's life well-lived, but but rather a, a, a grisly indication of just how far poor Achilles had sunk. He, he was divesting himself of all of his worldly goods and clearly planning for, for his death and his transition and his, to the land of the dead and his eventual and hopefully soon reunion with his beloved Patroclus. Well, the games came to an end late that evening and all of the other soldiers and all of the other warlords appropriately returned to their tents, they ate a large meal, and then they settled in for for restful, beautiful, healthy sleep. But Achilles, wandering back to his own tent, still could not sleep. And he found himself once again lying in his bed, tossing and turning. And Homer actually writes this section so beautifully, folks. Allow me to describe this night that Achilles was having, because so many of us, I think, have had nights like this in our lives. So, So I'll quote Homer here. Everyone else was thinking of supper and then the pleasure of sleep. But Achilles wept as he remembered his dead companion, and all mastering sleep could not hold him. He tossed and turned. Now he would lie on his side, now on his back, now on his face. And finally he would get up and, desolate, pace the length of the seashore until dawn arrived to light up the sea. And folks, of course, we've all had those long, dark, terrible nights of the soul when we have lost something that we know we will never get back and we cannot come to terms with it. But very few of us, fortunately, stay so deeply lost in our grief that, well, we then do what Achilles then did that night. Achilles woke up from his efforts at sleep and muttering to himself, 
walked behind his tent. He, he found the body of Hector lying behind the tent. He, he re-roped the body of Hector. He, he tied the body of Hector back to the chariot. And then Achilles drove that body of Hector in the wee hours of the morning, just as rosy-fingered dawn was spreading her light over the morning skies. And Achilles drove the body of dead Hector around and around and around the funeral pyre of poor dead Patroclus. Three times he drove it around and, and then exhausted and frustrated, Achilles brought the body of Hector back behind his tent and left it once again, hoping that the dogs and the birds might consume it. But the dogs and the birds did not consume the body of Hector, folks, and that's because some days earlier, Apollo, friend of the Trojans and, and the god of sickness and health and also the god of, uh, of reason and common sense and balance and moderation, had grown exceedingly, exceedingly alarmed at the behavior of Achilles and and Apollo had made a decision that Apollo was not going to allow Hector's corpse to be desecrated in this fashion. So Apollo, some days earlier, had flown down and, and healed, if you will, Hector's corpse. Apollo had repaired all of the damage and the injury that had been done to Hector. Uh, all of the wounds, the stab wounds, uh, the sword wounds, the spear wounds were now all gone. And, and, and that flesh of poor Hector that had been rotting and decomposing in the Mediterranean sun and eaten by worms and maggots for the last days, well... Apollo restored that flesh to living perfection. When you, when you looked down on Hector's body now, it appeared fresh as the morning dew, as if Hector were lying peacefully asleep without a scratch on his body. And then Apollo had turned and cloated that body of Hector in a golden shroud of protective mist. So, so no matter how hard every night Achilles would get up from his sleep and, and try to mutilate the body of Hector by tying it to the chariot and driving it around and around and around the funeral pyre of Patrol, Achilles could not maim or mutilate that body. The, a, a, Achilles's rage was now this ineffectual, impotent thing because the body of Hector remained perfect and intact and there was nothing that Achilles could do about it. Well, on the third night after Achilles had continued to, to attempt to mutilate this body of Hector, Apollo had had enough. He called a council of all the Olympian gods. He brought them into the throne room and he turned to the Olympian gods and, and Paulo burst out his complaint to the gods. He turned to the Olympian gods and, and he asked them, he said, have you forgotten about Hector? Have you, have you all forgotten that Hector was a good and a decent and, and a God's fearing man who always made the proper sacrifices? And when he was alive, never, never did anything horrifying or inappropriate. And, and now you're allowing Hector's body and his corpse to lie there and be mutilated by Achilles? And if you've forgotten Hector's family, if you've forgotten Andromache, his poor widow, if you've forgotten Astynax, a little boy who will grow up without a father, have you forgotten Priam and Hecuba, the parents who, who know that that corpse is lying unburied, caught between the land of the living and the dead? And uh, Apollo railed against the Olympian gods for completely neglecting this travesty that was happening down there on the battlefield behind Achilles' tent. And uh, Apollo turned around and said, and uh, what is it about Achilles? That you, that you're protecting him in this situation after all. He's, he's a man devoid of all decency. And, and then Apollo, I think, uttered some, some very, very reasonable words and advice. And, and listen precisely to what Apollo said. Achilles is not, after all, the first man to have a friend die. Men have lost loved ones before, who were even closer to him than this man was. A brother, perhaps, or a son. And those men wept, and they mourned for their dead. And then it was over. But this man has taken Hector's life 
and now ties him to the back of his chariot and drags him around and around the tomb of Patroclus, as if that will do Achilles some good. And of course, Apollo was dead on in his analysis. Denial, bargaining, rage, depression. Well, they're, they're all inevitable emotions that, well, we all go through when we're confronted by deep loss and pain. But we all get into trouble when we get stuck in or, well, we allow ourselves to disproportionately wallow in any one of those negative emotions for too long. And very clearly, Apollo was observing, Achilles had got himself into deep trouble. Well, the Olympian gods listened to Apollo's wise counsel and advice, and and then Hera, of course, had protested and thrown into a rage. Rounding on Apollo, she had turned around and attempted to defend her champion, Achilles. She said, Achilles is is God-born. He's not a human being. His mother was a deity. Have you forgotten that, Apollo? And, And as a consequence, Apollo, Achilles does not have to play by or conform to the rules of behavior, indecency, and moderation which govern all other mortal men. But Zeus, at this point, the father of gods and men, had intervened and and disagreed with his wife Hera. Zeus had turned to, to Hera and then turned to the other Olympian gods and said, No, Achilles has angered me. And now Achilles must return the body of Hector to his family, to his people, for a proper burial. Achilles must accept a ransom and return to that body. That is my word. And at that, of course, the other Olympian gods fell silent and Zeus turned to the deities and commanded two messengers to be sent down onto the Trojan plain. The first of the messengers that Zeus sent was Thetis. He, he turned to Thetis and he said, I, go talk to your son. Go, go talk to your boy Achilles. Explain to him that I'm exceedingly angry with him and, and tell him that he now must accept a ransom for Hector's body. This has gone on long enough. And so Thetis had flown from the throne room of Zeus, flown down beside her beloved son Achilles, sat down beside him in the bed. Achilles was sitting there mourning the death of Patroclus. And and, and Thetis had, had done what she could as a goddess. She'd said, child, how long will you gnaw out your heart with sorrow? And, and, and Thetis had provided very good advice. She said, Achilles, you should sleep. You should eat. Achilles, you should make love with the woman. In short, ladies and gentlemen, Thetis counseled Achilles to resume to the healthy, normal concerns of of balanced human beings, food, drink, sleep, companionship. But Achilles rejected them all. So Thetis turned around and she said, you must return the body, that is Zeus's will. And, And Achilles now, well, so deep into depression that he couldn't have cared either way, simply sighed, shrugged his shoulders and said, very well, I will do it if Zeus commands. Well, as Thetis was delivering her one message from Zeus on one side of the Trojan plain, on the other side of the Trojan plain, inside of the walls of Troy, Iris, one of the messenger goddesses of Zeus, was arriving inside the walls of Troy with a message for old poor King Priam. Now, poor Priam, the messenger goddess Iris found Priam outside the walls of, well, of his city, inside the walls of Troy, but outside of his palace. And and when she finally found Priam, he was sitting in one of the courtyards behind the palace. Priam was 
wrapped up in a raggy old dirty ratty robe and the, the old man in his misery after seeing his son Hector die had had left the palace walked down into the into the stables where 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 the animals were kept and Priam had smeared his head his his gray beard his entire body in fresh animal dung and then Priam had sat there deep in the dung smeared and covered in in dried animal excrement, crying his eyes out inconsolable. Priam sat there, a a broken, exhausted, totally emotionally destroyed man. And ladies and gentlemen, some pity on the poor king. He Priam was a noble man, but Priam was now a man in his very late 70s. And in the last 10 years of his life, he had witnessed the systematic destruction of of everything he had built of everything he had dreamed of and and more and more of his children and his family had died at the hands of Achilles over the 10 years of Achilles rampaging across the Mediterranean Sea Priam had seen his own daughter-in-law Andromache's family all butchered by Achilles Priam had lost the best of his prince sons in battle and and now Priam's beloved Hector his his eldest son and his hope for Troy his future his legacy now lay dead and mutilated. Priam was broken in spirit. And, and so Priam sat in the dung, in the mud, inconsolable. And, and, and that's where Iris, the messenger goddess, arrived with a message for the old king. Now, what Iris told the old king was actually a very strange message. She, she turned to Priam and she said, Priam, I have some good news from you for Father Zeus. Priam, go into the palace, clean yourself, Put on the royal robes of the king of Troy, then gather a cart, Priam, and fill it with Troy's best treasure, and guide that cart across the Trojan plain to the tent of Achilles. When you get to the tent of Achilles, Priam, drop to your knees and beg Achilles for mercy, Priam. Remind Achilles of his own father, and and then offer to exchange treasure for the body of your Hector. And Zeus promises you, Priam, that Achilles will spare you, and Achilles will accept that ransom and give you your boy's body back. So do that now, Priam. Well, Iris had left, and, and the king, sitting there in the mud, in the dirt, in the excrement, looked around in a daze. Was this real? Was this message to be believed? Or, or was this some terrible dream? Or was this one of the Olympian deities once again playing terrible, terrible tricks and deceit onto the poor Trojan people? But Priam, a man who had lost everything, was willing to grasp at any straw. If there was any possible way of, of saving his boy Hector from the terrible fate of never going to the land of the dead, well, Priam, the old man, was willing to grasp onto whatever straws, dreams or prophecies or visits from deities offered. So the old man roused himself from the dung heap. He, he walked back to his quarters in the palace. He cleaned, he bathed, he washed. He, he carefully put on the royal robes of the king of Troy. He put on his crown He and he summoned what dignity he could and as Priam was walking through his palace just beginning to assemble the best of the treasure as ransom well that's when his dear wife Hecuba saw Priam and and recognized that something was wrong Priam was clearly doing something that she hadn't anticipated so so Hecuba turned to Priam and turned around and said husband what are you doing it's it is the middle of the night why are you dressed in the robes of a king of Troy and 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 Priam had turned and explained the the visit that he had had he said it felt very real, Hecuba. Iris, the messenger goddess, was there. She she promised me I would be safe. She promised me that 
that Achilles would give back my our dear Hector's body. I have to go. And, and, and Hecuba was having none of it. She turned around and and Hecuba flew into a rage of despair and sorrow. She she said, are you a madman, husband? Have, have you lost your mind? If you go to the tent of Achilles, you have seen that man. He is a butcher. He will kill you. Am I to lose my son and my husband to that butcher? Stay here. And, and Hecuba wisely and quite prudently pointed out that, well, the message that Priam had received could very, very well be another deity deceiving the Trojans. She said, stay inside of the palace. But poor Priam was adamant. He turned to his wife, Hecuba, and he said, if there is any chance at all that this is the truth, if there is any chance at all that I can get my boy's body back for a proper burial, well, Heck was a good boy. He deserves that. And then Hecuba had said, he will kill you. I will never see you again. And I, I think Priam had uttered some of those saddest lines that, well, I've ever read. He turned around and and he said, If I'm fated to die near the Greek ships, so be it. Achilles can slaughter me once I have taken my son in my arms and wept to my heart's content. And ladies and gentlemen, the truth of it is that Priam knew that Achilles really couldn't kill Priam. Priam had lost his boy. Priam was already dead. And so the old king tenderly hugged his wife. They looked into each other's eyes for a moment. They remembered the good times, the times in Troy before the coming of the Greeks. And then Hecuba, realizing there was a good chance she would never see her husband alive again, he was going to the tent of their mortal enemy, Hecuba tenderly kissed Priam on the forehead and said her goodbyes. Well, Priam completed his task. He stepped into the courtyard. He he hitched up a, a small little cart guided by a donkey, and Priam made his way across the courtyard of the palace toward the main gates, and then his plan was to cross the Trojan plain to the tent of Achilles. But as Priam was crossing the courtyard in the palace of Troy, he happened across his other son, Paris, and a few of the other princes of Paris's ilk still living inside of the city of Troy. And ladies and gentlemen, the only reason that Paris and those other princes were still inside the walls of Troy and alive is because those princes had done their very best to avoid getting involved in any of the conflict which had killed the better of the Trojan princes. They had hidden like cowards behind their walls and done their best to not engage the enemy or to engage the enemy with arrows from a safe distance and then run away. And Priam, as he looked at those men lounging about and drinking, even as his Hector lay dead, Priam had rounded in those men and cursed his own children. Move on, you sorry excuses for men. If only the lot of you had been cut down instead of Hector. Now I am left with cowards. Liars, pretty boys, heroes at dancing, parasites, loungers, robbers who live off of the poor people's sweat. And folks, in that succinct speech, Priam had essentially told us everything that we need to know and be reminded about, about, well, about Paris, Prince of Troy, but much, much more disturbingly about the future of the city of Troy 
Now that Hector is dead and Prime is entering death's door, these are the princes, these men lounging in the courtyard, drinking in the middle of the morning, who will be Troy's hope or Troy's possible salvation in the days to come. Well, Priam guided his donkey cart across the Trojan plain. And folks, if you're wondering how Priam, an old man with a donkey cart loaded with treasure, managed to actually transverse the Trojan plain, get by the Trojan sentries and get by the Greek sentries, make it through the Greek defense lines and to the tent of Achilles, well, for that you have to thank Zeus, father of gods and men. Zeus had dispatched his messenger god Hermes and said, guide the old man, if you will. Now, Hermes was of all the deities up on Mount Olympus, the, the one deity that genuinely liked human beings. And I, I don't mean a deity that liked a particular hero or warlord of human beings, but Hermes actually liked us. He liked our species. He, he felt good around us. And so uh, Zeus, in a moment of rare insight, had actually chosen to send Hermes to guide the old man across the plain. And, and Hermes, delighted with the mission, had disguised himself as a, as a young teenage boy and gleefully arrived at the side of Priam and engaged Priam in, in chatter and idle conversation. Hermes passed himself off as, as a ward or, 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 a servant inside of the tent of Achilles, and that allowed Hermes to provide all sorts of wonderful and comforting information to old King Priam as the two of them walked across the plain. And, and Hermes assured King Priam that, yes, he had heard Achilles just the day before, and Achilles had every intention of accepting Priam's treasure and, and then returning Hector's body, and Achilles had no intention of, of physically harming Priam at all, so the old king did not have to worry. And, and then Hermes caring enough about human beings to understand the things in our greatest fears, Hermes had turned around and, and, and told Priam something which was quite gentle and quite wonderful and remarkable. Hermes had said, and you know, you know, the most wonderful thing is that the body of Hector itself, I saw the body only this morning and it is lying behind the tent of Achilles and the body is looking as fresh and healthy as the morning dew. There is not a scratch on that body. Apollo has come down and protected that body. Priam, you will be so happy when you see your son's body. Hector does not have a scratch or a wound on him. And ladies and gentlemen, well, you can imagine the comfort that that would provide to any parent receiving that blessed news. Well, when Hermes had got Priam to Achilles' tent, Hermes had smiled and in delight had revealed to Priam that he was actually the deity Hermes and then blessed Priam and, and, and said, all will be well, and Hermes had vanished. And then Priam, in fear and trembling, had stepped into the tent of Achilles, his mortal enemy. No, you have to recognize, of course, that in spite of all of Zeus's assurances, in spite of all of Hermes's assurances, Priam was on a very desperate mission. So he stepped into that tent. He saw Achilles standing in a corner. He immediately walked over to Achilles and Priam dropped to his knees and tears flowing from his eyes. Priam grasped onto Achilles's hands in a gesture of supplication and then Priam kissed those man-killing hands of his enemy. And Priam spoke. In very simple, direct words, Priam announced who he was. He said, I have come for the body of my boy. I have brought ransom. Please give my Hector back to me, Achilles. And Priam had then gone on to remind Achilles of the pain of fathers by reminding Achilles of what pain Peleus might be feeling. Priam said, your own father has not seen you in 10 years, Achilles, and 
Who knows if you will ever make it back to the shores of your own kingdom and see your father again. And so your poor man, an old man, waits for you, Achilles. And, well, I am like that old man. I'm like your father, only my situation is even more pitiable. Because I am the only king who has ever had to drop to his knees and kiss the hands of the man who butchered his own children. So have pity on me, if you will, Achilles. Well, ladies and gentlemen, when Priam spoke, something seemed to stir inside of Achilles, and on Priam's words, Achilles found himself overcome by, well, a deep sorrow and a, a deep sense of longing and desolation and loss and grief, and and Achilles stood there thinking, and he remembered his old father, Peleus, and Achilles, of course, knowing the prophecy that he was doomed to die in the battlefields of Troy, recognized that there would be no reunion ever again with his father. And and then Achilles recognized that he had lost the only other person that he'd ever truly loved, his, his dear companion Patroclus. So Achilles broke into sobs of sorrow and grief, first remembering Peleus and then remembering Patroclus. And, and as he started to cry, well, Priam began to cry and Priam cried for his memories of the loss of Hector. And before long, that tent, ladies and gentlemen, was filled with the sobs and the wails and the shared sorrows of these two very powerful men who had suffered so much and one who had caused so much suffering. Well, Achilles composed himself first. But the shared tears, the, the pity and even the empathy for the old king seemed to have done its healing work. Some of the sorrow and some of the ache inside of Achilles seemed to be gone. And, and, and Achilles, up until this point, inconsolable, became the source of consolation for poor old Priam. Achilles turned around to the king and, and, and provided Priam with the strangest advice. Good advice, but strange advice coming from Achilles in his current situation. Achilles said, Priam... Grief. Grief is something that we humans have to bear, and no heart-chilling anguish can do us good. Even if you endlessly grieve, Priam, it will do you no good. You will never be able to restore him to life again. And of course, the hymn which Achilles was speaking about was, well, on the surface, Hector, but certainly on another level, even as Achilles spoke, Achilles was speaking about his own Patroclus and his own grief himself. The thing I find most comforting, though, inside of Achilles' words, ladies and gentlemen, is that Achilles addresses Priam and says, Priam, we humans, we people, have to learn how to live with loss. And, and I think in those words, well, we can see Achilles at least entering that final stage of the grief process, acceptance and integration. Achilles is clearly making a desperate effort to struggle away from his anger, his wrath, his rage, his denial, his depression, back into the realm of mortal men and away from that terrible place where Achilles was half monster, half god. Now, I have to be careful at this point. There's a temptation to make this scene too touching or make this scene too maudlin. And, and if we do so, of course, we risk wallpapering over the deep and profound enmity between Achilles and Priam. These two men are still mortal enemies. And well, the hatred and the rage between the two of them still lies just beneath the surface. And that rage flashed, ladies and gentlemen, when Priam 
maybe pushed a little bit too far. Uh, Priam had cut to the chase. He had turned around to Achilles and said, so now I have said my piece, Achilles. So accept the ransom and give me the body of Hector. I want to take it home now. And maybe there was just something inside of Priam's tone or or, or Priam suddenly not being the suppliant anymore. But Achilles had, had snapped and, and the rage surfacing, he had turned around and he said, do not push me, old man. I will return your son. But watch how you speak with me or I might lose control of my temper, my rage might come back, and I might even kill you, old man, in spite of my promises to keep you safe here. So do not push me, sir. And folks, I think that Achilles recognized that these new emotions of, of empathy, of care, of concern were, were still very, very fragile. And, and Achilles, who had been spending the last 12 days deep in rage, knew that almost anything might make him snap. But as Priam cowered in fear at this, at this reminder of the wrath of Achilles, Achilles had recovered himself and actually turned to the servants and said, go obtain the body of Hector, wash, anoint the body, put it into glorious robes and, and, and place it onto the cart so that Priam, the king, can take Hector home to his own people for burial. And then at that point, Achilles had turned around and fully having recovered, the, the rage being pushed back down again, Achilles had smiled at Priam and said, and now, old man, it is time for us to think of supper. Because a man cannot fully grieve a loss on an empty belly, so so sit down and I will prepare a feast for you. And and poor Priam had turned and, and confessed to Achilles that in the last days since the death of Hector, he had not been able to eat. He said, food feels foreign to me. I, I, I've been struggling to eat. I've been struggling to sleep. And and, and the parallels are remarkable that Achilles on one side of the Trojan plain and Priam on the other side of, have both suffered the same grief, the same loss. They both have been unable to eat. They both have been unable to sleep. And, and, and both of their bodies even, Achilles is covered in, in gore and, and muck and dirt and sweat and Priam's covered in animal excrement and dung. Well, the two men at this stage are almost parallels of each other as they stand there sharing both of their profound losses and grief. So the two men sat down and Achilles prepared a feast. And it's hard for us not at this point to remember Odysseus's sage advice to Achilles of 12 days ago. An empty stomach, Achilles, is no way to mourn the dead. And 12 days ago, Achilles would not accept that advice. But now, well, since he's giving the advice to another man, Achilles seems to be able to partake of it himself. And so the two men sat there and they ate and they drank until they were full. Now, whether they talked to each other during the course of that dining and, well, imagine the conversations that the two of them could have had, or whether the two of them ate in complete silence, because really, what was there left to say? Well, we will never really know. But when they completed the eating and the drinking, Priam, an exhausted old man, had turned to Achilles and said, I find myself tired. I, I, I need to sleep. Can you prepare a bed for me? I I am just worn out from all of this. And, and Achilles had tenderly turned around and ordered that a glorious bed be prepared in the outer section of the tent for old Priam. And, and once Achilles had, well, tucked Priam, the old man in, Priam had looked up and before falling asleep had, had requested one more thing of Achilles. He said, may we have an 11-day truce inside of the fighting so that the Trojan people have time to properly mourn and, and burn and bury our prince, my boy, my Hector. And, and Achilles had said, yes, we will. And there will be an 11-day truce. And, and Priam, as he drifted off into sleep, had, had said, and, and then on the 12th day, the war will begin again, if it must. Well, Achilles had clasped the old man's tenderly, a, a reassurance, I suppose, that 
the man could sleep peacefully in the tent of his enemy that night, and all would be well, and Prime had then drifted into gentle and peaceful sleep. And as for Achilles? Well, Achilles had turned to the remaining food on the table. He had eaten a little bit more. And then Achilles had washed his body. And then Achilles had gone into the inner quarter of his tent and made love with Briseis before falling into a peaceful, restful, and finally restoring sleep. Well, that night, men slept peacefully on the plains in both camps, and upon Olympus, the gods slept in peace too. All the gods, that is, except for Hermes, the messenger god. But Hermes, watching over Priam, was worried, and Hermes recognized that Priam in the tent of Achilles was still in a very tenuous and terrible and dangerous situation. There was a very distinct possibility Hermes recognized that, well, a few bad things could happen. Uh, well, worst, of course, is that Achilles could wake up in the morning and, and Achilles' newfound humanity, his newfound acceptance and empathy would be replaced by another bout of rage and, and, and well, Achilles might kill Priam or, or change his mind about releasing the body. So, so that was bad. And of course, the other possibility is that, well, Priam was sleeping inside of the outer quarters of his enemy's tent. What, what would happen if in the morning some Greek warlord came down to the tent of Achilles, uh, innocently asking for advice or suggestion or counsel from Achilles and found Priam there, well, well, they might either capture Priam and hold him for a horrendous ransom against Troy, imagine the prize that Priam would be, or they might just summarily kill the old man, knowing that now Priam was dead and Troy was going to be left in the ever-so-capable hands of none other than Paris, Prince of Troy. So, so Hermes, looking down, recognized that he needed to get Priam out of the tent of Achilles well, the getting was good. So Hermes, not sleeping, had flown down and in the very middle of the night had, had woken Priam, turned around and said, Priam, we are going to leave now. It is a wise thing to do. And so Priam and Hermes had hitched the, the donkey back to the cart and then the two of them had, had carried Hector back across the Trojan plain towards the walls of the city. Well, it was one of Priam's daughters, a princess named Cassandra, who, who, who first actually saw Priam carrying Hector's body in the cart back across the Trojan plain. And Cassandra had, had let out a howl of, well, of grief, of relief, of joy, of pain, of sorrow, a whole mixed basket of emotions. And, and within a few moments, of course, word had spread throughout the entire population of Troy that, that Hector, their beloved prince, was coming home properly to his final resting place. And, and, and there would be a funeral and, and Hector would go in peace to the next life, to the land of Hades. And, and within a few moments of, of Cassandra calling out the good news, the good, terrible news, well, the entire population of Troy, all of its starving men, women, and children had rushed out of the gates of the city and, and were waiting there as old Priam guided the cart carrying his beloved son inside of the walls of the city. Well, the population of Troy followed Hector's corpse and state up into the gates of the palace itself, and, and, and then Hector's body was carried very carefully on a pallet into the royal quarters of the palace and, and right into the bedroom of Hector and his beloved wife Andromache. There they lay the corpse of Hector down onto the bed, and, and it was surrounded by the closest members of the royal family. Poor Andromache threw herself onto the bed, threw her arms around Hector, and inconsolable in grief she cried, you, You've made me a widow, Hector. 
you have made a Steinax, an orphan, Hector, and and then poor poor Andromache had prophesied the the fate of 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 all the women and all the children, all, all all the widows and all the orphans, which might happen now that Hector was not there to protect Troy from the ravages of the Greeks. And then it was the turn of Hecuba, Hector's mom, and and Hecuba had turned and and wailed her grief, but then expressed at least some relief that at least her dear boy was going to receive the proper burial that was his due. And finally, and strangely, was the last to speak, and that was poor Helen. Poor Helen, once of Sparta, then of Troy, and, well, now of really nowhere at all. Hector, Helen spoke, in all the years since I came here, I have never once heard you speak to me with a harsh or an unkind word. And when anyone else in the palace spoke to me harshly, Hector, you stopped them with your gentle words. Now I am heartsick. I weep for both you and me, because I am left with no one to treat me kindly and be my friend. But instead, everyone in Troy who sees me looks at me and shudders. And then finally, King Priam addressed the royal family and addressed the people of his city. There will be an eleven-day truce, Priam announced, for eleven days it will be safe for us to walk outside of our walls. So go, gather firewood on the slopes of Mount Ida. We will build a huge and glorious funeral pyre. And on the top of that pyre we will lay Hector, your prince and my beloved son. And the Trojans did that. They built a glorious funeral pyre, and when it was built they laid the body of Hector, prince of Troy, atop of that pyre. And they set the funeral pyre aflame. It burned all day, and the next morning, the Trojans carefully went through the ashes. They recovered the bones of Hector, prince of Troy, and they placed those bones in a glorious golden urn. And then they buried that glorious golden urn, deep in the life-giving earth. And in such way did the Trojans bury Hector, prince of Troy. And that, folks, is, well, where Homer leaves the Iliad. It's where we, of course, are going to wrap up this episode of Trojan War, the podcast, with the burial of Hector, Prince of Troy. Now, we have a couple of options at this point. Um, if you want to follow me in the post-story commentary, I'm going to discuss why Homer chooses to end his wonderful tale at this point when there is certainly so much more of the Trojan War epic story arc to follow and we'll look at the reasons why he's done that and some of the the challenges and issues that presents for storytellers like me. On the other hand, if you want to, you can just spend a few moments in this suspended state of, of grace and, and, and beauty and, and reconciliation and tranquility at the end of this particular story where Achilles has found some peace and consolation and Achilles is back to the realm of living moderate balanced men and where the Trojan people have been given at least the gift of the return of their son for a proper burial. So if you want to spend a few moments savoring this joy and peace and consolation before you head over to episode number 17 where the action and the adventure is going to ramp up to a fever pitch once again, well then I'd invite you to do so. 
So for some of you, it's goodbye, have a great day. And for a few of you, I'll see you in a few seconds and we'll carry on with the post story commentary. Hey folks, uh, just some very, very good news before we continue with this episode. Once you've completed all 20 episodes of Trojan War the Podcast, my sequel podcast, Odyssey the Podcast, is now recorded, ready, and waiting for you. So, another 24 entertaining and engaging hours of history's most awesome epic. You'll find all the details on Odyssey the Podcast waiting for you once you reach the conclusion of Trojan War the Podcast, episode number 20. And now, on with our current episode. Now, I told you that what we were going to talk about in this particular post-story commentary was, well, the question which an awful lot of people ask when they get to the end of Homer's Iliad, they get to that wonderful, wonderful scene where the body of Hector is placed upon the funeral pyre and they burn the body of Hector. And then in the morning, they take the body of Hector and they collect his bones and they put them into this beautiful golden urn. And they inter the urn in the life-giving earth. And, and and then somebody turns around, the writer turns around, the storyteller turns around and says, and so they buried Hector. And then Homer's Iliad comes to an end. And well, the question which clearly people always ask when they get to this particular point in Homer's Iliad is, well, why does Homer stop here when there is clearly so much of the Trojan War epic story left to tell? There, there are so many what happens next questions left unanswered at this point. And, and I think it is a legitimate question. And it's a question which I've encountered at least two defining times in my life as a storyteller. And so I, I think to give you a sense of why the question matters and how people pose the question and why it's so frustrating, I'll, I'll tell you the stories of those two times in my life. The first time that I encountered this problem was in my very first year as a high school English teacher. Now, if I can set the stage for you, I somehow managed to make it through an honors English university degree without once studying Greek mythology or even being made aware that there was this book called Homer's Iliad. I, I, I think I spent far too many courses studying the great Gatsby and Huckleberry Finn and Heart of Darkness. And, and consequently, I made it into my first high school English classroom completely ignorant of all and everything to do with Greek mythology. And and discovered, of course, uh, in the ironic, delicious way that the gods have of doing these things, that I was required to teach a major unit immediately on Greek mythology, Homer, and all of those things. The school board thought that it was appropriate that students leave high school with uh, at least a nominal understanding of the Olympian gods and a, a sense of who Helen was, the face that launched a thousand ships, and who Achilles was, and and, and about Homer and about this war, and, and that if somebody came up to them and said, have you studied the Iliad, they would at least be able to muddle their way through a question like that at a cocktail party and look passingly literate. So so my job was to teach something of which I knew nothing, and I got a lucky break. I, I discovered very early in the semester that there was an absolutely brilliant and gifted high school teacher in my own English department of that school, and he was also, well, the absolutely most wonderful and compelling storyteller I've ever listened to in my entire life. And what this teacher would do is he would go into classrooms and he would tell classes of 30 students the entire Trojan War epic story. He managed to take the epic story arc, which is taking me well, will take me well, well over 20 hours by the time I'm done, and get it down to about five or six hours of high school student time. But he would go into a high school classroom and, and, and talk for 70 minutes, and not one of the 30 kids in his class would move once. They were so entranced with this story. And, and I recognized 
I suppose, with great survival instincts that my best bet if I was going to get through teaching Greek epic and Greek mythology was to use my preparation period and sit in on that teacher's storytelling classes. And so I did that. And and so for days, I would sit in on his version of the Trojan War epic story, uh, frantically listen and take copious notes, and then in the afternoon, go into my own introductory English class and and, and try to fake my way through telling the same thing and, and likely did it very, very badly for those poor students in the first few years. But I was so excited the first time that I heard this teacher tell me the Trojan War epic and make passing reference to Homer and the Iliad that I remember rushing off to the public library on my very first weekend of hearing the story, going up to the librarian and saying, hello, I'd like to take a book out of the library. It's called The Iliad. It's by an author named Homer. Do you have a copy of that book? And and the librarian, I suppose, with rather arched eyebrows had turned and said, yes, we're a library. We have Homer, sir. And, And he had signed out a copy of The Iliad for me. And I'd rushed home with great anticipation and delight made myself a big pot of coffee and sat down on the couch, opened up book one and expected to delve right into exciting details about uh, the wedding and the apple of discord and, and a beauty contest and all of those wonderful stories. And and much to my shock and, and confusion, what I found when I opened book one of the Iliad was this argument between King Agamemnon and Achilles over a slave girl. And well, I had heard that episode of the story in the classroom from the brilliant storyteller, but I knew that that episode didn't show up for a long time into the epic. And so I was confused. So so to check out if I had the right book, I, I rushed to book 24 of Homer's Iliad and I, I went to the very ending to see how it ended. And, and there it ended with, well, the burial of Hector, tamer of horses. And I thought, this is not right. Uh, what, what's happened to Paris? What's happened to Achilles? What's happened to Helen? what's happened to Troy. And, and so in a panic, I I assumed that I had made a mistake. I drove back to the public library. I found the same librarian and, and, and I apologetically said, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, I've inadvertently signed out book two of Homer's Iliad and what I really wanted was was book one. I'll read that one first and, and then I'll come back and sign out this one and then I'll sign out book three. I, I, folks, in my ignorance, I assumed that Homer's Iliad was a trilogy, something like Lord of the Rings, and I just inadvertently picked up the middle book in the story. And and there I was standing in front of the librarian asking for possibly book one. And, and fortunately, the librarian didn't ask me what I did for a living. Well, some years later in my life, of course, once I got into studying Homer and teaching it, I realized my mistake and recognized that Homer actually, well, begins his story in the middle of things and then ends his story with the funeral of Hector sometime later still in the middle of things if you're thinking of Homer's stories inside of the broader sweep of the Trojan War epic. Well, years went by and I continued to tell the story and, and I and I began to figure it out. And, and I've mentioned in previous podcast episodes that I, I tried to clarify when I go into schools and I tell to high school auditoriums of students, I, I, I try to clarify that I was actually telling the Trojan War epic and not Homer's Iliad with, with mixed success. People tend to still use the two terms erroneously and synonymously. But then a year and a half ago, I had another wonderful opportunity. I, I was invited to join a cast of 18 storytellers in an epic 12-hour long telling of Homer's Iliad at Ottawa, Canada's own National Arts Centre. And and this was a really big and exciting deal and quite an honour to be invited to be a part of. And and what the, what the directors of this particular production did is they very, very carefully took the Iliad and they divided the Iliad as much of what they could fit into a 12-hour production. They divided it up into 18 sections and and then they invited the public to come and put down very good money to essentially attend this storytelling performance. And 
much to all of our shock and delight and joy, well, at 8 a.m. in the morning on the Saturday when we started this production, well, we had a sold-out house and we had to turn people away. And, and then people sat there with their early morning coffees and, and well, the Iliad began with the argument between Achilles and Agamemnon over Briseis' slave girl. And over the course of that entire Saturday, the work proceeded, only interrupted by necessary breaks for food in Retsina. And then sometime late, late, late at night, sometime around 10.30 p.m. or so, one fortunate teller had the opportunity to deliver the final lines. Uh, that teller turned around and said, and so they buried Hector Tamer of horses. And, and at that moment, the, the house lights dimmed and then they came up and the entire assembled storytelling cast and our brilliant director stood on stage and we all took a well-learned bow. And, and the audience was genuinely moved and enthusiastic and excited by the entire production. And, and there was this moment of silence and then the house lights came up. But as I watched the audience, I noticed that, oh, at least 40% of the people in that audience, maybe more, were then kind of still sitting in their seats at the tables and and waiting well for the intermission and and then the denouement if you will they there were unanswered questions there were a lot of people whispering around about well what happens next and, and well does does Achilles die does prophecy come true uh, what about those walls of Troy that'll never be destroyed by an enemy force does that hold and and what about Helen what happens to her and and I recognized that there were a lot of individuals sitting in that highly educated and literate audience who who still didn't realize that, well, this was it. This is where Homer ended his work. And, and eventually when the house lights didn't dim and another teller didn't come out, those, those people got into their cars and, and drove home with a whole series of unanswered what happens next questions. And so that gets me back to my foundational question of this post-story commentary, the question of, well, why does Homer end his Iliad here? And, and here I think is my best attempt at an answer. And the first answer is this, is that Homer's audience differs profoundly from you, my podcast audience, in a few respects. And and here's what we need to know about Homer's audience. Homer pens the Iliad sometime on or around 700 BCE. And, and Homer's audience, of course, who would have well read Homer's Iliad, but more likely attended live recitations and performances of Homer's Iliad on or around 700 BCE, they knew the Trojan War story arc inside and out, upside down and backwards. The Trojan War story arc was this culture, Greek culture's foundational myth and story, and it had been since the Bronze Age of the Trojan War, and it remained so right up through the, the classical and the Hellenistic period of Greece and right into the time period of Rome. So everybody that Homer was telling his story to in the Iliad knew the answers to every what happens next question before they even got to a recitation performance or a reading of Homer's Iliad. Homer does not once inside of the Iliad have to worry about things as plot spoilers or, or giving plot spoilers guarantees because everybody already knows how it's going to end. And and my audience, my those of you listening to my podcast serial and are hanging in for this particular thing, well, well some of you are in the privileged position of Homer's audience, but quite legitimately, many of you are not. Uh, the Trojan War epic cycle is an important work inside of the Western literary cultural tradition. And, and if you've hung in this long, you can see how so many parts of this work permeate our art, our literature, our culture, and, and even the way that we talk to each other. But it is certainly not a foundational work on which every citizen living in North America or Western Europe has grown up with. And, and as a consequence, well, I have to assume when I'm telling the story of the Trojan War epic that, well, most of my audience might not actually know what is going to happen next. And, and I have to always, when I'm crafting my story and deciding how to cobble together the pieces of the story, honor the no plot spoilers guarantee that, well, that I made way back in the beginning. And therefore, 
Homer's goals in his Iliad are quite, quite different than Jeff's goals in Trojan War, the podcast. My goals are of necessity goals of plot and story. The what happens next answers to those questions. And, and, and I think that's likely because my personal belief is that well, if you think about it, almost nothing at all, folks, beats the sheer unadulterated joy and pleasure of diving into a new work of fiction or an exciting new movie or an interesting new play or a podcast and genuinely not knowing what is going to happen next. It's it's a feeling and a sensation that just cannot be rivaled. I remember in high school when teachers handed me a copy of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet and I genuinely didn't know how that play was going to end. Well, it, it, it turned it into a page turner. And, and I remember the next year sitting in class and, and, and reading the most wonderful of all no- novels, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, and, and getting to that pivotal scene in the novel where the jury retires to, to debate on whether Tom Robinson is innocent or guilty. And I, I remember reading those pages and, and on the edge of my seat, terrified, not knowing how will the jury come back and what jury verdict will they come back with. And and nothing beats that particular pleasure. And of course, in that case, nothing beats that. Well, I better be careful, plot spoilers again. But then, of course, let's move on to other episodes. Uh, I, the first time through Lord of the Rings, reading Lord of the Rings and not really knowing if Sam and Frodo were going to make it to Mount Doom with that ring in. And of course, finally, if we want to go back to movie, that magical, delicious, wonderful moment when we suddenly discovered, well, who Luke Skywalker's father really was. And so my goal is always, folks, when I've been doing Trojan War, the podcast, to do my very level best to avoid plot spoilers, which, which all of us who have grown up in the Netflix age have so grown to loathe and detest when they happen to us halfway through a series that we're loving and somebody spills the beans of something that's going to happen in the next episode or in God forbid two or three seasons down the line to come. But Homer's concerns were quite different in, in the Iliad. And and for Homer, not having to worry about plot spoilers, Homer instead could concentrate on creating a work of artistic genius. And and so if you're reading Homer, you can, well, read Homer once, and then you can do that wonderful thing that we do with all of our favorite artistic works of art. You can get the pleasure of rereading Homer multiple times and get new delicious gems and nuggets and moments of joy in multiple readings. And, and, and those moments, of course, in Homer don't come in the multiple readings or the multiple listenings from going, oh, I wonder if Achilles is going to actually return the body or, oh, I wonder if Paris is actually going to be killed by Menelaus because we know those things. The joy in the subsequent readings of Homer, like in the joys of the subsequent readings of all great works of literature or the joy in the subsequent viewings of all great movies is watching a great artist or craftsman at work on constructing a brilliant craft towards an inevitable conclusion, which we, well, after the first time through already know. And so, so if you're a movie watcher, think of a movie like Casablanca or, or, or The Godfather or Apocalypse Now or virtually anything by Alfred Hitchcock. We know how those movies end after our first time through, but we keep going back to those movies because watching a brilliant director and brilliant actors and actresses at work is, well, that is a pleasure, well, I think only rivaled by the pleasure of our first time experience through the stories. And and if you're not into film, well, then I'd refer you to Shakespeare's Hamlet for a literary example of the very same phenomenon. So I, I think that our best way of actually answering the question of why Homer leaves the Iliad in mid-story is because, well, Homer's Iliad is actually a story in itself. It's a tiny little individual self-contained moment of art 
lying inside of the vast epic that is the Trojan War story arc. And it's it's self-contained. As an English teacher, I look at Homer's Iliad and I see all those things that us English teachers get hot and bothered by. There's exposition, there's rising action, climax, falling action, and an appropriate denouement. It's all there. And and in fairness to Homer, when you open up book one of the Iliad, he, he tells you precisely what his story is about. He doesn't say, sing goddess about the Trojan War. Listen to what Homer actually says in the opening lines of the Iliad. The rage of Achilles. Sing it now, goddess. Sing through me the deadly rage that caused the Greeks much grief and hurled down to Hades the souls of so many fighters, leaving their naked flesh to be eaten by the dogs and the birds of prey, as the will of Zeus was accomplished. Begin at the time when bitter words first divided that king of men, Agamemnon, from God-born Achilles. And so, folks, it's likely best if we actually think of the Iliad as a self-contained individual story about one man's transformative journey inside of the Trojan War. And that man, of course, is, is Achilles. And the Iliad is the story of Achilles' journey from the moment when Agamemnon dishonors him in Book 1 by taking away Briseis through everything that happens to Achilles and through everything that Achilles does up until that final moment in book 24 when, well, Achilles returns the body of Hector to old King Priam and, and, and Achilles' journey is complete. And, and so Homer ends his Iliad actually at a very appropriate moment. It's in a moment of suspended peace and reconciliation. Uh, Achilles, the, the half-monster, half-god, is returned to the land and the concerns of human, mortal, living men. And Achilles is once again bathing. He's once again eating. He, he's once again sleeping beside a woman that he cares for, the arms of Briseis. And, and Hector's body, which has been mutilated, has been restored to perfection, fresh as the morning dew. And Hector's body, which is wandering alone and lost between the land and the living and the land of the dead, has been given the proper funeral rites. And Hector's body have been interred in a golden urn in the life-giving earth. So if you think about it, well, the story is complete. So what better place to leave it? In this moment of, if you will, suspended grace. And so Homer chooses to leave his Iliad here. And well, that's wonderful for Homer. And well, we though, as podcasters and, and podcast listeners, of course, our mission is different from Homer's. I I promised you way back in episode one of this series that I would tell you the entire Trojan War epic as best I could with no plot spoilers along the way, and and I'm going to work in the assumption that you have never heard the story before. So I will continue to soldier on with the burning question, well, what happens next, Jeff? But I would urge you folks, well, once you've got to the end of this particular podcast and it finally wraps up someday and you're in that privileged position of knowing everything that Homer's audience would have known back in 700 BCE and, well, I'll make an aside here, you will actually know much more than Homer's audience knew because many of the story episodes that comprise the Trojan War story arc were not written until well after Homer's time. But once you're in that privileged position of knowing all the answers to all of the what happens next questions and someday give yourself a treat and go back and read Homer's Iliad as a self-contained literary work looking at it as a story of one man's transformative journey the story of Achilles's rage and and how that rage transforms Achilles and changes everything inside of this war it's it's a beautiful story and it's a great work of art at the end of the day Trojan War the podcast will at best you're getting good story and in Homer, I think you will find, at best, absolutely brilliant art. 
So that's a good place to leave things. I'm going to uh, say goodbye now, encourage you to get over to podcast episode number 17 as quickly as possible because there is plot, there is action, and, and there are lots of what happens next moments waiting for your listening pleasure. In the meantime, have yourselves a wonderful day. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you again soon.